Hello and welcome to the Dorkomotive Podcast with Brian Loans. This episode, called Origin Story, tells the tale of the birth of stock car racing, which happened in Los Angeles in 1934. Yes, that southern sport that would go on to dominate the American motorsports landscape was born in Los Angeles on the grounds where the LAX airport currently sits. It's a fun story with loads of twists and turns. This is the Dorkomotive Podcast. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is presented by BeefJerkyUnlimited.com. Made in Michigan with nationwide shipping available, Beef Jerky Unlimited cares about the jerky you eat. Small batch production means the highest quality jerky on the market and a wide variety of flavors and options to fit the full spectrum of flavor profiles you're looking for. Beef, pork, and chicken jerky are available, as well as low-carb options and more. Made with real smoke, real salt, and without adding nitrates, MSG, or preservatives. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com should be your next stop for a tasty, healthy snack. Whether it's sweet, hot, or smoky, BeefJerkyUnlimited.com has something to fit your taste. Use promotional code JERKO, that's J-E-R-K-O, for a 10% discount on your next purchase. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com, they care about the jerky you eat. Use JERKO for 10% off. A never-to-be-forgotten episode in the history of American auto racing took place at Mines Field in Inglewood, California in 1934 when the nation's top drivers were entered into a 250-mile roadster race. The event, known as the Gilmore Cup race, was run on a B-shaped oil dirt track which measured approximately two miles around its circuit. In addition to a large assemblage of famous drivers, the race was also participated in by leading automobile dealers of the West Coast and many representatives of the country's automobile manufacturing and supply industries. Held on Saturday, February 18, 1934, the race was sponsored by Gilmore Oil Company, originators of the famous Red Line and Blue Green gasoline brands, whose service stations and delivery trucks proudly displayed the checkered flags and the slogan, Roar with Gilmore. The Minesfield event was promoted by the one and only Bill Pickens, Dean of American Auto Race Promoters, and also the man who made Barty Oldfield famous for introducing him and his Golden Submarine on a coast-to-coast tour. The carefully prepared two-mile track was located in a large field, which is now the site of Los Angeles International Airport, where many of the nation's leading airlines have their western terminals today. Grandstands at the race had been used for the national air races and were enhanced to accommodate a large anticipated 50,000-person crowd. The B-shaped arrangement of the track allowed the cars to pass close in front of the grandstands two times each lap. Such was written in the Hot Rod Magazine issue from March of 1951. It's a story called Roadsters in the Big Time. It was written by E.A. Roscoe Turner, one of two parts of a story that would run in back-to-back issues 16 years after the event we're going to talk about today was held, which, as I mentioned, is considered the very first stock car race as we know it today, and it was not held in North Carolina or Florida or South Carolina or Georgia. It was held in Los Angeles on the spot where LAX currently sits. This is one of these great stories, and I can't wait to kind of get into the weeds with it with you because of the people and the circumstances and all the stuff around it. It's a largely forgotten part of racing history in this country, um, and it should be remembered because it is an anchor point that would help grow stock car racing from a novelty into what we now know is probably the largest single form of motorsports in America. Hey everybody, I'm Brian Loans. Welcome to the Dorkomotive Podcast. That is my preamble to this episode. I'm calling origin story because in reality it is the origin story of stock car racing to a degree. And I think when most people think of that sport and how it came to pass, it's always about the bootleggers and it's always about the people down south and it's this and it's that. 
And of course, that is a huge part of it. But even predating those guys, predating the 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 guys with their hot rotted coops outrunning the revenuers, if you will, down south, we're gonna we're gonna go back to the twenties and thirties to tell this story about where the idea of stock car racing kind of came from. And to set the to set the tone, to set the story here, we have to kind of talk about what racing was in a larger sense, in the 20s and 30s. And it was a rarity to race stock automobiles. Racing was always something that uh, had a, uh, obviously a big element of danger. We're going to talk a lot about that. A lot of these guys died. Um, But it was also something that had equipment that was exotic and that was handmade and handcrafted and and, uh, was technologically advanced for the day beyond what a normal passenger car would be. But the reality is this style of racing became immediately popular because of the fact that, A, people immediately and very personally related to the cars that were being raced because they could actually afford them. They could buy them, if not the exact cars on the racetrack, something very, very similar. In this case, Roadsters, Fords, Chevrolets, Chryslers, I mean, the the -the run-of-the-mill stuff that, that John Q. Public not only could buy, but was buying in droves at that point. The other thing was the fact that it actually changed the perception of what racing and racing promotions could and should and would end up being. And that is a promotion of people beyond the machines. When we talk about Barney Oldfield and we talk about the the, the true stars of, of auto racing in the early 20th century, so much of that promotion was about the cars they were driving. Was it the Blitz and Benz? Was it the Peerless Green Dragon? Was it the Ford 999? In this case, when all the cars are quote-unquote equal, when all the cars are quote-unquote stock, when all the cars are quote-unquote normal that you could just go drive down the street, which they actually did, um, all of a sudden it's the people. And the racers themselves, as famous as they were, become kind of ultra promoted here and we're going to talk a lot about that and, and who was in this field it's one of the the great gatherings of racing talent in the history of this country and so the drivers become a higher focal point because the cars are all evenly matched and normal we would see this decades later in things like the iRock series we see it in the world of 2023 and things like the SRX stock car racing series where the cars are effectively identical And it comes down to the driver's ability to manipulate that car beyond the ability of others. Not necessarily that they have a better tune-up or they have some trick parts, but that they have the innate ability to drive faster than the other people in the race. And it becomes a much more compelling human interest story than simply a study in the mechanical abilities of the car. And so, you know, racing at that time with these was huge dollar stuff. And this was not huge dollar stuff, and it was very relatable to the fans. It was a unique concept. And so that is where we need to start telling the story. Now what we do have to do, as after I've read that that Hot Rod story there about how the Roadsters really stole the show in 1934, we have to talk about something that happened in 1933. And for those uh, folks listening that are big-time you know, racing historians, you're already gritting your teeth thinking that I'm forgetting or blowing off 
an episode of of competition in 1933 that had a great impact to even lead to what we did in 1934. So for those of you doing that right now, take a deep breath. We're going to talk about the Elgin National Road Race next, and that is something that would have a direct effect on what happened in Los Angeles in 1934, but there's also some misconceptions around that race that need to be cleared up from the historical record to boot. So the Elgin race was a revival of an event that would happen years and years before. It was revived for kind of a, a part of the 1933 Chicago World's Fair. And so uh, if you listen to Dorkomotive with any frequency, you know now at this point I cannot get through an episode without mentioning uh, some year of the Chicago World's Fair. It seems to be a running theme. But in 1933, they brought the road race back, and they ran two classes. Uh, there was a production class. And there was an open class, and the, the open class was basically contested by the what we would know as champ cars, or the, really the, the pre-runner of Indy cars today were competing there. But many of those big-name drivers took place in this open class. And because of the profile the event had, and because it was a revival-style thing tied to the World's Fair, there was some interest in it, and interest among auto manufacturers, especially on the stock side. So Ford really got interested in being a part of this event, and so they ended up um, kind of backdoor supplying 10 cars to compete here. And the Ford Roadsters, uh, of course, had flathead V8s, and, and they, they really whipped up on everybody. And, you know, the, this was, in, a, in effect, the first stock production car style race that became very popular in the United States. I do not call it the first stock car race because it was run on an eight-mile road course that used public streets and really does not follow what we would now know as what stock car racing is considered in the modern sense. Stock car racing, to me, is held on a closed circuit. And yes, I know that there are, you know, now that the Chicago road race and other things in NASCAR, but historically speaking, stock car races were not held on an eight-mile circuit of public roads. So that's why I don't necessarily consider the Elgin National Road Race the first birth of what we now know as stock car racing. This, the format was different. And one of the things that was not different, though, was the fact that the AAA sanctioned the event, demanded the cars be stock. They allowed certain modifications. You could take the windshield off. You could have the fenders off. Um, the engines were supposed to be stock. They weren't. Um, the engines were supposed the you know suspensions, the chassis, the parts, and the pieces were supposed to be all stock as they came off the production line. As we'll learn about the 1934 Elgin race or the 1934 Mines Field race in Los Angeles, liberties were taken with these cars by the manufacturers and by those that entered them because, as we all know, and as this will serve as proof, there was cheating going on in stock car racing from the very first stock car race. It's the nature of the business. Yes, it's mostly stock, but uh, maybe we milled the heads down. There was a lot of stuff you could have done to a flathead Ford V8 in the 1930s that no one would be able to tell. For instance, uh, yes, they would check the bore and the stroke of the engines at Elgin, but they had no way to check about the size of the camshafts. Um, the carburetors that were on these cars, a lot of them would have Stromberg carburetors on it, um, and they were not the typical carburetor that arrived uh, on a flathead from the factory. So it's it's the fun story of tweaking stuff and, and, and making things better. I mean, some of these cars were going 120-some miles an hour on the straightaways, which a stock 32 Ford or 33 Ford Roadster with a flathead is good for about 90 flat out if you do the math on a gear ratio and kind of what the thing makes for power uh, and what the red line is. So 
when you have cars that are averaging 80 miles an hour a lap, achieving speeds 20 to 30 miles an hour over what their legitimate drive it off the dealership lot speed is, um, you know there's some um, some malfeasance afoot, but that is the nature of racing. So the Elgin Road Race happens, and it happens in late uh, 1933, or the summer, I should say, of 1933. A lot of people will say that the Elgin Road Race was the first race in the Gilmore Cup in California, and all those people are absolutely wrong. I don't say that because it's my opinion. Um, I say it because it's a fact. You'll read a lot of stuff about the Elgin Race, and it'll always say that it was part of the Gilmore Cup. And the reason I can tell you that that is absolutely false is because the Elgin race was held at the end of the summer of 1933. And according to this story published in the Los Angeles, California Daily News on the November 6th, that is the 6th of November, 1933, that is when the Gilmore Cup was announced. Headline, Gilmore to give auto racing cup. Story, Earl Gilmore, sportsman, yesterday announced that he would put up a Gilmore Gold Cup as an award in the proposed 300-mile automobile race at the municipal airport in December. Dun-dun-dun. Dates and times, folks, dates and times. So the Elgin race predated the Gilmore Cup, but likely inspired the Gilmore Cup. And the proposed 300-mile race is the event we're going to start talking about. The location is the place we're going to start talking about that. But the time frame is a little different. The event's not going to come off until February. And, you know, that story being published in November, um, it's a pretty insane time frame to try to turn around and put on an event. So the other thing to talk about here is that the Gilmore Cup would actually expand itself to four events. The race we're going to talk about at Mines Field is the concentration is the first race. The second race was called the Targo Florio that was to be held at the Ascot Legion Speedway. The third race in the series was a one-mile dirt oval at the Oakland Speedway. And the fourth race in the series was a place called Silvergate Speedway, which is a 5 eighths dirt oval. Now, this is the second reason that I believe that this is the origin of stock car racing, because it is a series. It was not a singular event. It was a series of events. Four of them would make up the Gilmore Cup, and they would all be contested over the course of 1934. Rather than go into all four of them, uh, I would rather concentrate on the Mines Field Race because it really does kind of set the tone. For Gilmore, you know, he was an incredibly wealthy man. The Gilmore brands of gasoline were, were very popular. He was sponsoring and supporting so many different things, but of course he loved racing. This was a guy whose whose business was built on the idea of promoting and showing off how his product could make all this power and, and could make your car run better and all the other stuff. So beyond all the other sports he was involved in, all the other activities Gilmore supported, racing was always a central part of the Gilmore brand. You've likely seen Gilmore logos. They're very popular in retro-style stuff. You've maybe even seen some cars that were lettered up, like those that competed at both Elgin and like those that competed at the Mines Field Race and in the Gilmore Cup of 1934. It's a very romantic kind of cool thing with the hand lettering, the Red Lion logo, all of it really presents very well. So after this Gold Cup, or rather Gilmore Cup, was announced in November, it did not take long for big names in the world of racing to start showing up in the news. This is four days later. Los Angeles Daily News. Headline, Star Auto Racer on Way to L.A. Story, the Trek East, 
The trek of the Eastern Speed Kings to Los Angeles for the running of the 200-mile Gilmore Gold Cup event for stock cars and the 200-mile AAA National Championship race over a road course inside the municipal airport on December 10th began yesterday when Phil Red Schaefer, winner of the Elgin Road Race last August, wired officials that he was leaving Des Moines for the coast. This is a story that would become daily, daily leap. It was present every single day in the news in Los Angeles, and every day there would be a new racer committing to coming. Every day there would be a new uh, piece of information about the event, about uh, who was going to be there, about how fast the cars are going to be, about what cars are going to show up every single day. And that doesn't happen by accident. It happens because you have a promoter. And if you remember, I mentioned the name W.H. Pickens in that opening statement from the Hot Rod Magazine retrospective story that was written in 1951 and looked back over the event from 1934. So rather than forge ahead with the race, we need to talk about the guy that is promoting the race. And W.H. Pickens is one of the great characters in modern auto racing. To me, it is always interesting how history produces or seemingly produces the right people for the right time to do the right things. And Pickens was the guy that really helped uh, push the world of racing in the United States ahead. He was born in 1877. And he was this big, rotund guy from the South. He had a larger-than-life personality. Reminds me of everything I read about Colonel Tom Parker, uh, the guy who managed uh, Elvis Presley for so many years. Just had that kind of force of nature presence about him that allowed him to, uh, to do a lot of stuff. Now, Pickens was a guy who promoted all different types of things, sports and everything else. But he met Barney Oldfield in 1904 in Salt Lake City. Pickens was... Um, behind and paying the bill at a hotel so he was basically being held hostage by a hotel manager wouldn't let him leave because he was way behind in paying the bills that he had had and accrued at the place so Barney Oldfield met him there and Oldfield actually fell in love with the guy to a degree just really they hit it off Oldfield knew that he needed somebody that was a really good promoter because he was barnstorming around the country with his race cars or wanting to and he needed somebody to be able to sell this Oldfield, of course, was a professional bicycle racer, turned auto racer, and would become one of the most famous men in the country because of his relationship with Pickens. So he pays Pickens' hotel room, they become chums, and they start blasting around the country promoting everything and anything they can do. The two of them are interesting because the AAA, whose name has come up and will continue to come up, the main promoter of or sanctioning body of all racing in the country did not like them because of their act. Oldfield and Pickens would show up, whether it was with the Peerless Green Dragon or the Blitz and Benz or some other really just gnarly, high-horsepower, big, crazy car, and they would show up and run at fairs and everything else. He would race against a horse. He would race against an airplane. He would race against local talent. But Barney Oldfield was absolutely barnstorming the country, making a pile of money, but also kind of defying the rules of the AAA. He was not doing things the way they wanted. He and he and Pickens would actually be banned by the AAA during a section of their lives. But they also were two huge outlandish and outsized personalities that had their um, differences, let's say. So 1904, they get together, and things get off to a flying start. Of course, they're all making money hand over fist, and when that's happening, uh, there's nothing that can go wrong with any of these guys. That being said, when we get to 1907, um, there was an interesting interesting program here. 
Pickens was also managing a guy named Walter Christie. And Christie was uh, a very innovative guy in the world of racing and automobiles. You may have seen photos of a Christie front-wheel drive car that would compete at the Indy 500 and would actually race just like Oldfield all over the country. Barney Oldfield hated, absolutely hated Walter Christie. And so somehow they were both in the same city at the same time. Uh, Oldfield and Pickens end up in a fist fight. They they both get drunk at separate bars and manage to hear that the other guys are like down the block. And so they both get hammered and then they go beat on each other. And what's really kind of funny is the the newspaper stories of this account are, are great because it talks about the two of them being drunk and then they beat on each other and then they both had, you know, swollen faces and black eyes throughout the rest of their, you know, their time in the city. Oldfield was still at this point, 1907, one of the most famous guys in the country. So it was a big deal, not only that he was kind of showing his manliness and having a fight, but also that uh, he was even in the city in the first place. So even when he was doing the wrong things, Pickens somehow managed to do the right things promotionally. Uh, he had that type of personality that was perfect for the age and what he was trying to do in that uh, most of the time with these events with Oldfield, it was blast into town, make a big hullabaloo, have the event, and leave with as much money as you possibly can. And so, you know, the things that they did to get attention were kind of kind of wild. Again, I mentioned the airplane races, uh, the Maybe the biggest, most controversial thing they did was Barney Oldfield raced the heavyweight champion of the world, Jack Johnson, uh, in their 1900s. This was controversial because Johnson was the very first African-American heavyweight in the world. He was one of the most contentious sports figures in the country, and the fact that he and Oldfield were on the racetrack together um, became a big, big, big sticking point to a lot of people, including the AAA, and that's what got him a very long suspension. Uh, because people just couldn't handle the fact that there was an African-American guy that was the best boxer in the world at that point. And Johnson lived an outlandish life. He he relished the spotlight and did a lot of a lot of cool things in terms of um, kind of defying what the public wanted him to be. And one of those things was racing cars, which uh, is kind of wild to think about. But Oldfield raced him, and that got him into big trouble, but they also made an absolute pile of money as well. In the early 1920s, he was a promoter at one of the four tracks that carried the name Ascot in California, which I'll talk about those in a little while. And then in 1924, uh, he started promoting the new Ascot track. And finally, in 1928, um, he was he was out of California, then back in. I mean, this guy promoted you know, tennis matches and all kinds of stuff, but racing is really where his heart was. And when Gilmore came up with this idea for the Gilmore Cup, he knew the guy that he needed to do the promotional job was Pickens. And boy, was he right. So we know that some of the racers are starting to commit to coming out and they start to kind of build this bank of stars uh, from the Monrovia News Post of Monrovia, California, December of 1933. Cliff Durant will referee race bill. Los Angeles, December 19th. A former auto racer, but now a designer of speed planes and cars, R. Cliff Durant was named the referee for the Gilmore Gold Cup race to be run at Mines Field February 18th. Durant took part in 14 of the Indianapolis Memorial Day Speed Classics. So you note that we've had a date change. Right, the date has changed now to January, or rather to February. I have to believe that came from Pickens. When the cup was announced, he was basically going to be given a month to promote the race. I think he's the one that went to Gilmore and said, no, you got to give me a little time here. This is Los Angeles, huge market even then, and he got it. So the race moves to February 18th, and 
the first mention of Indianapolis is with that Durant um, announcement that he was going to be one of the one of the stars of the race, and this becomes an ongoing theme and one of the most fascinating parts of this story. In that, the Indianapolis 500 factors humongously into the interest of this story to me and and hopefully to you. We continue with a story from January of 1934. Fred Frame enters Gilmore Road Race, present stock car champion to be favorite in stock car race at Mines Field. This story from the Pasadena Post, January 19, 1934. It reads, Fred Frame, the Indianapolis champion in 1932 and present champion stock car road race driver, filed his entry today in the Gilmore Cup stock car race at Mines Field Municipal Airport, February 18th. Frame won the 1933 Elgin Road Race with a Ford V8, averaging 80 miles an hour for 203 miles. He was also timed at 100 miles an hour in a straightaway. He'll be driving the same car in the local 250-mile grind adorned with a Michigan license plate of V-8. A veteran in the race game, Frame was one of the original drivers at the old Ascot track 10 years ago. He's been campaigning in the cast for the last few years and will be making his first appearance in the coming Gilmore race, heading a strong group of drivers who will comprise the Ford entry. So, we're getting the big stars in now. When Frame announced he was coming, game changer. The guy won the 1932 Indy 500, which was, um, in so many ways, still is considered you know, the premier race in the world. Back then it was even more so. They raced the champion cars there. They weren't racing stock cars at the Indy 500. They were racing the fastest, most cutting-edge, most gnarly stuff that you could have at the time period in the United States. So when Frame announced he's going to be there, not only do you have the winner of the Elgin race racing the same car, which is pretty cool, you also have this idea that uh, he's an Indy 500 winner, and he certainly was not the only one. In fact, as we will learn going through this show and as I profile the field of racers that compete at the Mines Field event in 1934, you'll understand the fact that the numbers are incredible when it comes to the Indy 500. 17 of the 27 qualified racers raced in the Indy 500, representing 171 starts and 14 victories if we look at them as drivers and or owners. Countless top 10s, countless top 5s. We're going to profile the racers that actually drove these cars because to me they're the most fascinating part of the story. But if we kind of get back to the timeline, uh, we've been talking about some of the promotional things going on that the Durant's announced, Frame announced he's coming, and the Los Angeles Evening Citizen, now again we're January 1934, about a month before the race, had a kind of a, a promotional column, a gossip column, not sure how you want to call it, but it was pretty much daily focused on this race and to quote uh to quote this particular day it reads bill pickens the sentiment accelerator par excellence bounds back into the promotion picture and you're apt to hear a lot from him in the business of automobile racing between now and february 18th when bill and some other fellows put on the 250 mile gilmore cup gold gilmore gold cup race at mines field Rebuffed but not dismayed in his plans for the Speed Classic when a 200-mile national championship race featuring men like Lou Meyer, Lou Moore, and other leaders of 1933 fell through, Pickens kept pegging away until he got AAA sanction for his Gold Cup idea. Now you can expect a veritable torrent of descriptive matter about the stupendous, colossal, blood-tingling, nerve-wracking, spine-chilling duels of these knights of the wide-open throttle. Bill will spare no adjective. Nor will he be miserly in expenditure of time, energy, and money, and another promotion will be added to his long list of successes. 
Road racing is one of his first loves and will put it on with a flourish that should dwarf even the glamorous Santa Monica road race days. There is a wide field here for Pickens' talents, faster cars, an ideal two-mile course, and a class of drivers that means close competition. Those stripped-down buggies will go plenty fast, too, and you can rest assured of that. They'll be stripped of all excess baggage like tops, fenders, lights, and windshields, but otherwise will be stock in every meaning of the word. Pickens, his co-promoter in the AAA, will see to it that there is no, no finagling around. And if you know anything about auto racing, you know that some of the lads will put over a fast one if given any loophole. Of prime interest is the 200-mile Gold Cup race will be the antics of the drivers who are accustomed to all left-hand turns for their racetracks. Taking a few of these turns to the right on the minefield hairpin will be interesting. The track will be an oval except for a straightaway in front of the grandstands and the snakery bend on the far end from the stands as well. The drivers will make their usual left-hand turns going into this bend and then will round a right-hand corner to emerge on a short straightaway. Then, before swinging back into the oval, they'll have to make another right turn. All this will be in full sight of the grandstand, and it promises to be interesting. So that description there is what, to me, locks this in as the first official stock car race. It is held in a stadium-style environment. In fact, it was a stadium built to observe road uh, air races, I should say. It should also be noted that uh, it is a not a perfect oval. It is a left and right course. It is effectively a two-mile-long uh, course shaped like a giant letter B. And the neat thing is that there's left and right turns, which seems like a small, you know, it seems like a small kind of change in the plan, but it makes for a big story here. And it changes it from an oval race, so to speak, to a road race because there's multiple directional turns, even though it's happening inside a closed environment. So we talk about uh, some of the things regarding how stock the cars were. I'm going to get into that in a few minutes, but. It's kind of cool that this uh, gossip column, if you will, intimated the fact that, um, you know, every once in a while, somebody might try to pull a fast one, you know, over the course of uh, over the course of the, the tech inspectors and, and everything else. But the idea that race is AAA sanctioned, you know, Pickens has gotten himself on the right side of that. He, of course, has secured the money in the cup from Gilmore to put this thing on. And he is absolutely you know, hammered down in promoting this is, is pretty great. Lastly, there was a reference made in that column about the Santa Monica races, which had happened until about 15 or so years before this event. And what makes this Mines Field thing so huge for Pickens anyway as a promoter is that it reintroduces this type of competition to California, um, which had been gone forever. You know, the, the Santa Monica road race was a very popular thing. It was held on public streets. It involved the big, you know, championship cars. It was not a stock car race per se, but the idea that he gets to reintroduce this type of competition into a market that's very hungry for it also makes him understand that he has what he believes will be a massive hit on his hands. And as we'll find out, he was absolutely right. This episode of the Dorkamotive Podcast is presented by BeefJerkyUnlimited.com. Made in Michigan with nationwide shipping available, Beef Jerky Unlimited cares about the jerky you eat. Small batch production means the highest quality jerky on the market and a wide variety of flavors and options to fit the full spectrum of flavor profiles you're looking for. Beef, pork, and chicken jerky are available, as well as low-carb options and more. Made with real smoke, real salt, and without adding nitrates, MSG, or preservatives. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com should be your next stop for a tasty, healthy snack. Whether it's sweet, hot, or smoky, BeefJerkyUnlimited.com has something to fit your taste. Use promotional code JERKO. That's J-E-R-K-O for a 10% discount on your next purchase. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com. They care about the jerky you eat. 
Use Jerko for 10% off. So we should mention the race course and where its location is. We talk about Mines Field. And what Mines Field was was basically the municipal airport for Los Angeles all the way back uh, 90 years ago. That Mines Field is now LAX, one of the busiest, largest, most sprawling and wacko airports uh, in the United States, if not the world. So when you fly in and out of LAX, uh, you are landing on or at least uh, barely skimming over the top of the location of what is effectively the first stock car race in American history uh, in the style that we know it today. The course itself was 1.9 miles, as mentioned. It was the shape of a giant letter B. It would be comprised of a total, drivers would have to make a total of about 768 turns to complete this race, both left and right. We would call it a roval today. It is a road course oval, right? So we know that they have a roval at Daytona, a roval at uh, Charlotte, which uses sections of the super speedway with a dip in for uh, left and right kind of road course stuff. This one, of course, made of dirt, uh, was very, very rough, especially by the time the race got uh, over. It was oil dirt. The oil was used as an agent to suppress dust. So you would go on there and you would just basically dump hundreds, if not probably hundreds, if not thousands of gallons of motor oil into the, into the ground to keep the dust down, which did a lot to stop the dust. Probably didn't do a whole lot for the environment. Now, the reason that this course was innovative um, at the time was because since the Santa Monica road races went away, it was basically all board track racing or horse track uh, style dirt circle racing. So, you know, the left and right element as normal as it seems today was actually a pretty thrilling thing for people to think about. It wasn't simply just going around a left-hand oval as fast as they could. And the, the, the piece of property was basically owned by the city of Los Angeles, was leased, and the stadium that the race was run in was originally set up for the uh, Los Angeles air races, which, you know, the pylon style racing at the time, um, obviously this predates jet planes, predates World War II. So these were piston propeller aircraft that would race uh, around pylons uh, above the stadium. So it was a ready built area. It was a ready built thing. And it was certainly uh, sat as was predicted is to sit somewhere around 50,000 people. And to talk about the excitement of the course itself, we go to the Pasadena Post of January 26, 1934, and the headline is Hearts Praises Racing Course, Leading Pilots Entered at Mines Field. Dateline Los Angeles. Famous pilots of the Speedway who are to compete in the 250-mile Gilmore Cup race at Mines Field, the running of which is only three weeks away, are beginning to realize that they will not be driving on a boulevard. Harry Hartz, the former AAA champion who will act as the starter of the Classic, took a trip over the two-mile course today and declared that a lot of the drivers will be surprised at the condition of the course, which includes flat turns and a surface of plain old-fashioned adobe, heavily oiled. Heading into the list, heading the list of Eastern stars are Fred Frame, Ralph Hepburn, Cliff Berger, Leon DeRay, Wilbur Shaw, Stubby Stubblefield, Pete DiPaolo, Chet Gardner, Tony Galato, Lou Moore, Shorty Cantlin, and Eddie Meyer. Ernie Triplett, who will carry his familiar number one, Rex Mays, Al Gordon, Sam Palmer, Kelly Patillo, and Herb Balmer comprised a list of local stars. That was another great element of this race. Not only did you have really high-level, nationally known names, but the West Coast's best competitors were also going to be mixing it up. So you had that local element of competition as well. January 30th, 1934. The Los Angeles Evening Post record headline, Shaw Confident of Road Race Victory. 
Naming a Chrysler as his mount in the Gilmore Cup road race to be contested over the municipal airport two-mile course on Sunday, February 18th, Wilbur Shaw, the noted Indianapolis Speedway pilot, second in the last Indianapolis 500-mile race this morning, declared confidence in winning the big event. Shaw, one of the outstanding Speedway drivers of the East, has been offered a Ford V8, Studebaker, a Terraplane by Bob Musil, former big league ball star, and a Plymouth, but he chose a larger Detroit make in the final analysis. Seat sale for the race opened yesterday at 1106 South Hope Street Racing Headquarters. So that's how organized Pickens was. He was selling advance tickets to this thing. You think that's something that only happens today on the internet, but 90 years ago you could go to the ticket office and get your advanced tickets to make sure you got a good seat and uh, we're not uh, going to be locked out of a sellout-style crowd, which is what you know they were kind of hoping to see. Lou Moore in road race as pilot number 19. And again, it's this daily drumbeat, a great promoter, daily drumbeat in the newspaper. Who's going to enter today? What's going to happen today? What's the piece of news today? Well, the Los Angeles Evening Citizen of January 31st, 1934, was the announcement of Lou Moore entering the race. Quote, swelling the entry list to 19 with the closing of nominations two weeks away, Lou Moore, internationally famous racing driver this morning, named a Chevrolet as his mount in the Gilmore Gold Cup race to be contested over the municipal airport course February 18th. Moore finished second to Fred Frame in the revival of the road and stock car race near Elgin, Chicago, Elgin, Illinois, near Chicago last September. Both Frame and Moore drove V8 Fords in the race, the finish between the pair being only a matter of a few seconds. Moore believes his coming mount will enable him to turn the tables on Frame, who will use his Elgin car here. It is Henry Ford's personal car. Cliff Berger, the whirlwind, of, the whirlwind dervish of the Speedway, and consistent money winner in many Indianapolis 500-mile races was entry number 18. The former movie stuntman will drive one of Bill Froelich's V8 Fords. He was a third-place finisher at Indianapolis in a Studebaker last May. Now, effectively two weeks before the race, and this is just shortly after Lou Moore was announced as being part of the event, they allowed practice to be made. And this comes from the Los Angeles, California Daily News, February 2, 1934, Special permission from airport manager Richard Barnett's yesterday enabled four entrants in the 250-mile Gilmore Gold Cup road race booked for the Los Angeles Municipal Airport February 18th to take their first trial spins around the two-mile course. Pete DiPaolo, twice national AAA champion, Fred Frame, national road race champion, Kelly Patillo, and Eddie Seward were the first to tool around the mounts, their mounts around the B-shaped route that calls for both left and right turns. That was the only mention made of practice but again this is all part of the Pickens media machine everything that happened leading up to this race was documented in some form in the news and it is a kind of a speaks to his ability to continue to kind of break through the let's call it um let's call it the very busy media landscape of California even in the 1930s you have to understand this was still Southern California, this was still Hollywood, glitz, glamour, famous people. So for this race to take on this life of its own and the way it was promoted and all the drivers that were coming to race these stock cars, and as you've maybe begun to figure out, many of them would be driving the same cars that competed in that Elgin Road race, which may or may not have been, quote-unquote, completely stock. But we continue the build-up to the race, and we get to February 8th of 1934. Another promotional piece, this time from the Van Nuys News and Valley Green Sheet, reads Gilmore Gold Cup race February 18th. 
Southern California sports fans are agog over the revival of the road racing scene, reminiscent of the Santa Monica, Corona, and Phoenix events, certain to be in order with the first running of the 250-mile Gilmore Gold Cup Road Race at Los Angeles Municipal Airport February 18th. Because of the odd course, fans will be able to see the progress of the race at all times while reclining in comfortable chairs. Tickets are on sale now at the Ascot Arcade Ticket Office. All authorized Ford dealers, the Automobile Club of Southern California and its branches, the Roosevelt Hotel in Hollywood, and the racing headquarters at 1106 South Hope Street. More than 60,000 people are expected. Stock cars with a piston displacement of less than 300 cubic inches, which includes Fords, Terraplanes, Dodges, Buicks, Auburns, Continentals, Plymouths, Chryslers, DeSotos, and many others are eligible. Such great stars as Fred Frame, the National Road Race Champion, Pete DiPaolo, Ernie Triplett, Al Gordon, Rex Mays, Stubby Stubblefield, Shorty Canton, Chet, Gard- Chet Gardner, Kelly Patillo, Lou Moore, Wilbur Shaw, and in fact, every great driver in the nation have entered. Every great driver in the nation has entered. And this is the selling point. The greatest drivers in stock automobiles that you can own. For... Pickens, something very important happened just a couple of days after that first story was published. And that thing that happened is what happens in so many cases in racing, which, as a sad reality, helps to sell tickets, but one of the racers was killed in practice. The Pasadena Post of February 15th, 1934. Glendale Boy loses life as car crashes. Subhead, Patillo Stubblefield also in narrow escapes during trials. First to officially test the two-mile B-shaped course, Kenny Wellens, a 27-year-old Glendale driver, died as a result of injuries received when his car turned over while qualifying for Sunday's Gilmore Gold Cup stock car race, the 250-mile contest scheduled at Mines Field. Roaring into a sharp turn on the southwest slope of the course, Wellens' car leaped out of control, skidded onto the soft dirt, and and hurtled over. Both Wellens and his mechanic were thrown clear of the car. The mechanic, Jay Durant, escaped unhurt, but an ambulance was called to rush Wellens to the Centralia Hospital in Inglewood where he died. Eyewitnesses stated that Wellens appeared to be experiencing difficulty in taking the turns. However, he gained confidence with more practice, then followed his death run. The accident occurred in the morning with several of the 10,000 fans lured to the field by qualifying trials during the day seeing the crash. Wellens died shortly after 3 p.m. in the afternoon. He received internal injuries, several crushed ribs, a fractured left shoulder, and cuts and bruises. With his parents, Wellen, who was unmarried, resided at 607 East Elk in Glendale. His driving experience in competition was limited, it was reported. He was known slightly as a Class B driver at Ascot. Meanwhile, many well-known veterans of the Roaring Road found trouble negotiating the tricky turns of the track, which was recently oiled. Stubby Stubblefield, the nationally known driver, had a narrow escape from a similar wreck on the east turn when he skidded and two wheels went into the soft dirt. Stubblefield, by desperate maneuvering, succeeded in bringing his car back onto the track unscathed. Later, Kelly Patillo, one of Ascot's finest pilots, took a wild skid, barely missing an iron fire plug on the outside of the right-hand turn just opposite the grandstand. A few moments afterwards, he and Stubblefield brushed each other without accident. One lap later, Patillo blew out both rear tires instantaneously, but pulled off without what might have resulted in a serious wreck. Because the, only the field of 30 will be allowed to start in Sunday's Classic, qualifying trials will continue today and tomorrow. So, this is the reality of racing promotions in this time in history. 
there was going to be a big crowd at this race. But when a 27-year-old hopeful race car driver who was trying to qualify for a race among the greatest legends of American motorsports dies in the process, it sells tickets. Whether you agree with it or not, it sells tickets. It is something that people... E.J. Potter was a famous drag racer in the 60s, and he used to have this V8 motorcycle, and he traveled for 10 years with it. And he told me once that he said, people used to buy a ticket to watch me kill myself. And when I didn't kill myself, they would buy a ticket the next year to see if I did it that time. And when you present danger, and when you present not only the specter of danger, but the actual proof of danger, it goes next level. And as you're going to find out, it, it, this singular incident helped to supercharge what was already going to be an amazing crowd. Mention Kelly Patillo and the fact that he was an all-star kind of local hot shoe at Ascot Speedway. We have to talk a little bit about Ascot because the West Coast racers, the less well-known racers that I'm going to talk about in a few minutes, basically all earn their, their bones, earn their, their, their guts, their reputations at Ascot Speedway. But believe it or not, there was actually four different versions of Ascot Speedway. There was one that was open in the very early 1900s. This would be located in what we now know as South Central L.A. From 1907 to 1909, it was then knocked down to create a Goodyear plant. Then there was a second Ascot Speedway, which is the one that we're talking about here. This would be the Ascot Speedway that is open until about 1936. And it's called Ascot Legion Speedway because the American Legion Post in the area operated it. And it was the the dirt track kind of, it was probably the premier dirt track in the country in terms of who was there on a week-to-week basis. Guys would make their living actually racing at this place that opened up in 1924. It was actually built by Pickens. The guy that's promoting this race actually had a hand in building the place. Five-eighths mile uh, dirt oval opened in June. January of 1924, a guy was killed the second week it was open, helped to fill the grandstands. By 1927, the place was basically bankrupt, and in 1928, the Glendale American Legion took over the management of the track, and they bought a long-term lease of it in 1929. This was a place where the rich and the famous would come out and hang out. It was a glamorous place to be with movie stars and actors and performers would come watch the racing. And the racing was um, almost inarguably some of the best in the country when it came to either big cars, the big race cars, or even the you know, jalopy-style races, if you will, or the hand-built race cars. It was also incredibly dangerous. 24 people died there in 12 years, six alone in 1933. In 1934, a modification was made. A flat half-mile dirt oval was placed inside the banked, paved 5-8-mile track. And by this time, the American Legion wanted to get out of the racing business, especially with the three deaths in 1933. They just did not have the stomach for it anymore. Also, there was a strong kind of growing anti-racing sentiment in the public because of the um, because of the danger. And when we talk about the end of this racetrack, it came because of another death in 1936. Then there was a third Ascot built. That was called Southern Ascot Speedway. That was open from 1936 to 1942. Then World War II comes along, racing stops. And finally, the fourth Ascot Speedway is the one that most people kind of know. Ascot Park in Gardena, California. Uh, the Ajaganian family you know, promoted that racetrack famously. It was open from 1957 to 1990. 
So for those of you listening that are familiar with, you know, California racing history and you hear Ascot and you think of a specific place, there was actually four Ascots. The one most people know is the one that operated until 1990, but this was the second one in line. And it was an incubator of a lot of great talent. It was also an incubator of a lot of danger and unfortunately a lot of fatalities, 24 people in 12 years. So I wanted to give some Ascot context for when we get into the biographies of these racers that are competing. Now, one of the interesting things happened during qualifying, and there was a rain delay. So it rained on February 16th, 1934. And when it rained, something really interesting happened. For the Los Angeles, California Daily News. Title, Auto Racers Strike Averted While Storm Delays Time Trials. The story reads as follows. Peace and quiet reigned yesterday at the camps of the nation's foremost auto race drivers who are assembled here for the 250-mile Gilmore Gold Cup race at the Municipal Airport Sunday afternoon. A wire from the Eastern Factory to the effect that the truck tie rods are interchangeable for pleasure and business cars rubbed out the last semblance of a protest from the drivers. A.C. Pillsbury, AAA, Pacific Coast, and Regional Director asked the factory for a ruling on the stock status of truck parts when several of the drivers demanded the right to make sure the heavier tie rods to ensure greater safety on the curves. A steady rain yesterday prevented the continuance of qualifying trials, but it afforded the drivers a needed opportunity to make necessary adjustments after the strenuous practice session of Wednesday. Pillsbury announced last night that the rains had not injured the track in any way, but would prove beneficial in laying a new foundation for the dirt packed into the grooves at the turns. At the last minute, a last-minute change in the lineup, we'll see Pat Brooks driving a Rockney in place of a Studebaker. Last week in Los Angeles, a Los Angeles youth entered the Studebaker, but yesterday he received permission from Pillsbury to change his mount to the Rockney. Tony Galato had Eddie Seward's Plymouth at the track waiting for a chance for a practice spin, lending credence to the rumor that he may also change his mount. Okay, what did we just hear there? What did we just hear? What we just heard was the fact that they were already cheating at the first stock car race. The first stock car race did not even involve stock cars. And it also goes back to the idea that these Fords, which they did not name Ford in the story for obvious reasons, they were probably afraid to get sued. They, the Eastern Factory, the letter from the Eastern Factory, upon further digging into this particular element of the story, which I find fascinating, is that the Fords that were run at that Elgin National Road Race in 1933, which were then basically sent straight to California to compete in this event in 1934, were 100% factory massaged and modified. And the reason the truck tie rods were added was not have anything to do for safety. That is the great chant of a cheating racer. Everything, when a guy gets caught cheating and racing, the first thing he says, well, I did it for safety. They were sent there so the front ends didn't fall apart. They were sent there because they were bigger and they were beefier and they were better. So this, to me, is a great element of the environment of stock car racing, which people say, oh, you know, Smokey Eunuch and this and that. Smokey Eunuch, yes, he was one of the great minds of, of the entire sport, and people call him a cheater. Some people call him just an interpretive rule reader. Bottom line, end of story, is that at the very first stock car race at 1934 at Mines Field, the cars, the majority of which, the fast ones, weren't even stock. They had truck parts in them, and I love it. I think it's a great part of the story. I think that AAA probably uh, irrigated their knickers when they had this protest made. I think they went, uh-oh. And so they, they hey, uh, we're going to ask Ford, 
the Eastern Factory. We're going to ask the Eastern Factory if um, if these cars are stock. And, of course, the factory goes, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 they're stock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, those truck parts are there. It's uh, safety. Yeah, 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 that's what it is. It's not that they're heavier duty, more reliable, uh, more robust than anything any other make or model of car would have on it. No, no, no. No, no, no. It was just simply for safety. It had no performance advantage except for the fact that, of course, it had a performance advantage. Which also goes back to the earlier point I talked about the engines. There is no way in Hades that the engines in those roadsters were stock. They were, as best they could have been in that time frame, blueprinted. Camshafts were definitely not stock. Anything they could do within reason to create a stock appearing car, which outperformed everything else, they did. Such is the nature of the stock car business forever until this moment. And it's great. It's great that that DNA exists from the jump start of this whole entire thing. So love that point. The other point I want to make, too, is they mentioned the name of a Rockney automobile. And this is a short sidebar story, but the Rockney automobile, which qualified last in the field, was named after a football coach. Some of you may be uh, knowing of the name Newt Rockney, who is a famed uh, football coach at Notre Dame. He won, uh, let's see, three uh, college championships uh, in the 20s and up to 1930. And he also worked for a South Bend, um, Indiana-based automobile company called Studebaker. And in 1931, Studebaker was in search of a low-cost model. And it just so happened that Newt Rockney was retiring from his duties as the athletic director and football coach at Notre Dame and was going to go to work full-time at Studebaker. And so they were going to name... Uh, much to his surprise, they were going to name this low-cost automobile after him. The only problem is Rockney never got the ability to be surprised because he was killed in a plane crash before they announced this model of car, before they announced what it would be called, and before he had any chance to promote it. So whenever you hear of a Rockney automobile, know that it is named literally after Newt Rockney, the famed fighting Irish football coach from 100 years ago. So now the Technical infractions have been sussed out. The work has been completed in terms of the promotion of the race. And now we got to talk about qualifying. So the day before the race, qualifying is locked. Headline, Daily News, Los Angeles, California, 17 February 1934. Just as dusk was setting over the Los Angeles Municipal Airport last night, Rex Mays, runner-up to Al Gordon at the 1933 Pacific Coast Championship, wheeled his Ford V8 around the two-mile course in 1 minute 38.79 seconds to win the coveted pole position for the 250-mile Gilmore Gold Cup race this weekend. Mays qualified in 1 minute 39.96 seconds Wednesday, but when he watched Al Gordon, Fred Frame, the national road race champion, and Sam Palmer beat his time, he asked for another chance, got it, and won. Palmer was the first of the speedsters yesterday to lower May's time of Wednesday. He pushed his mount around in 1 minute 39.12 seconds. Gordon then turned the circuit in 1 minute 38.20 seconds. It was Gordon's second effort of the day, having driven in 1 minute 40.10 seconds, only to have the technical committee discover he had been running without a fuel cleaner. That part was put in place, and he returned to the track. Of course, no fuel cleaner in cars that had a... Uh, gravity-fed fuel system would provide at least some sort of an advantage because you'd have technically higher fuel pressure in the engine. Landing second in the pole position in front row, while Palmer will have third frame by dint of trying tying Palmer, gets the outside position in the first row. 
In all, 27 cars qualified and were impounded by the Technical Committee for Inspection. They will not be returned to the drivers until shortly before the start of the grid to 1 p.m. tomorrow afternoon. Several last-minute switches were made in the driving personnel. Babe Stapp's physician decided that he was not in condition for the chase, so Babe turned his car over to Al Reinke. The AAA officials decided that Jerry Hook, who has not had enough driving experience, and his machine was given to Woody Woodford. Ralph Hepburn has had more success with the Chrysler than Noel Woods, and the latter abdicated to Ralph's favor. The drivers agreed that the track was in excellent condition, with the exception of a few ruts on the curves, which will be ironed out today. The gates will be locked today. It was announced that gates will be open at 8 a.m. Sunday morning and that the Gilmore Flying Circus will offer a stunt program starting at 11 o'clock. Ticket orders have poured into the headquarters at 1105 South Hope Street from all sections of California. The field is set. The race is set. The tickets are sold. And the event's going to kick off. It's excitement. It's craziness. And it's a 50,000-person stadium that at 8 a.m. the next morning will begin to receive what is estimated to be seventy-five to 80,000 people. This thing was a phenomenon. They came from all over the place. They came in so hard and fast that they basically overran the gates. The track itself was lined with people in cars. They simply busted down the fences and came in. So the organizers made piles and piles and piles of money. But they also had a crowd on their hands that they had no means to control whatsoever. And the race itself, I'm going to tell the next part of the story in two sections. We're going to talk about the race itself, which really to me is it's not irrelevant. But I want to tell the story of the race itself. And then I want to go back and give you some biography or some biographical information on the people actually in the race and how this played out. So the race happens. And I can tell you that nobody died in the race. The action was really good. Um, there's some news, uh, real footage of it out there and you see the cars just flying through the dirt and sliding sideways and bouncing around very compelling footage. And if you're somebody in 1934 watching cars that you think you could afford on the racetrack, doing things that are just crazy, whether they're jumping through the air or sliding through the turns, this is a great advertisement for everybody involved. Headline Tulsa Tribune, Tulsa, Oklahoma, February 19th, 1934. Gordon wins car race. Before 85,000 persons at Municipal Airport, Al Gordon, Devil May Care Pacific Coast Automobile Racing Champion, Sunday won the 250-mile Gilmore Gold Cup Stock Car Road Race and a spine-tingling finish with Stubby Stubblefield, who trailed 14 seconds behind Gordon's time of 4 hours and 14 seconds. Louis Meyer, three times national champion, was third, and Pete DePaula was fourth with young Rex Mays fifth. That was one race report. This one from February 20th, 1934. And here's where things get really interesting. Changes made in winners of road contest. Headline, Gordon denied race victory. Remember, I just read you a story that said Al Gordon won the race. This is a couple of days later. Climaxing a long and heated dispute, the AAA board here today ruled that Stubby Stubblefield, the winner of the Gilmore Gold Cup road race held last Sunday, according to A.C. Pillsbury, Pacific Coast representative of the racing group. It had been previously announced that the generally accepted that Al Gordon, the 1933 Pacific Coast champion, was the winner. The ruling set him back in the second place, and the driver immediately filed notice of appeal to the contest board of the AAA in New York. At the same time, the standings of Lou Meyer and Pete DiPaolo were reversed, the former being moved back up to fourth and DiPaolo up to third. 
Gordon says that he has based his protest on the charge that Stubblefield moved up when the race was being run under the yellow flag when the track was being cleared of wreckage after a mashup. Stubblefield was originally given second place after a sensational duel with Gordon. He was awarded first prize today, however, when the recheck of the timers and AAA officials showed that Stubblefield negotiated the full distance. It was ruled by the local board made up of Pillsbury, Ira Vale of New York, and Cliff Durant that on the 33rd lap, Gordon pulled into the pits for fuel. When he drove in, the checker credited him with a lap. When he pulled out onto the track, he was again credited with a lap, giving him an undeserved margin of one lap on the rest of the field. Gordon continued around the track for several laps after receiving the winning flag, so it was a short of second prize money despite the ruling. The charge that Gordon had not completed the full 250 miles and he was given the winning flag was originally made by Babe Stapp, local race driver, who checked each driver from the pits during the event. The victory gives Stubblefield the $1,375 first prize and reduces Gordon's money to $750. What is so reminiscent or so eerie about this is that the first running of the Daytona 500 took days to decide who won. This first running of a closed course stock car race in front of a massive crowd took days to figure out who won. And credit to Al Gordon because Gordon did not make a big case of this. Yes, he filed a protest paperwork, uh, much because he was, um, you know, I think concerned about losing half his prize money. But Gordon, once he saw the paperwork and once he saw why he was moved to second, actually did not did not fight back against Stubblefield. He recognized the error. He congratulated Stubblefield. He was gracious about it, and he went on with his business and went, went on with his life. So, you know, Al Gordon um, is kind of a, a neat hero in this whole thing because he got um, he definitely got uh, his his butt kicked in terms of the scoring, but he was also gracious for for everything. And so the final race report I'll read is from the Los Angeles Evening Citizen News of Hollywood, California, written by a guy named Claude Newman in his column called For What It's Worth. After watching the artistic and financial success that was the Gilmore Gold Cup road race, we suspect that many thousands of auto racing fans will agree with us that senior Senor Bill Pickens is the premier promoter of unusual sporting events. Times without number, we have maintained and contended that anything Pickens has put his heart into, he could not but succeed, and he has proven us right again. All the which gives Hollywood another leader, in so much as the inevitable Pickens is a resident hereabouts. Never before in the history of coast dirt track racing, so far as anyone can tell, has there been such a jam of fans for an event. In fact, it is said with reason that it was the greatest turnout for any sports event outside of a major football game or the Olympiad. So stick another plume in Mr. Pickens' hat and accord him the praise he showed just, so justly deserves. It was his idea and his sentiment acceleration that did it. Although we got full cooperation from William White for 15 years, a man concerned in auto racing, Earl Gilmore of the oil company that bears his name and numerous others. Pickens will disclaim any credit, but the fact he remains that he remains to sell the idea to various gentlemen who helped the fans who turned out in tens of thousands strong. Pickens gives assurances that this will be an annual affair, and these, those who saw it will tell him yay. For our part, we'd like to see some real racing cars and a speed duel over the course, chariots like those that burn up the asphaltian highways at Legion Ascot Speedway. But maybe that would be too hazardous, the way these souped-up buggies can travel. There will be some to naysay the fact that Al Gordon, the wild-eyed and strong-arm Italian, is a peer of the coast drivers. 
And after the way he drove, chaps like Stubby Stubblefield, Lou Meyer, Wilbur Shaw, Lou Moore, Rex Mays, Pete DiPaolo, Fred Frame, and others into the ground, there will be few to dispute his right to national ranking. Spurred on by his success in driving 250 miles of the difficult course without relief, Gordon can be expected to cast his eyes in the direction of Indianapolis and its rough brick 500-mile test of stamina, nerve, and skill. It was no fluke that Gordon won. It was downright excellent driving, the willingness to take chances, and a steady pair of hands at the wheel. The Italian is a husky daredevil looking the part of a heavyweight wrestler for his girth of chest, breadth, and shoulder, and sturdiness of physique. There was to be a race of those speed chariots that he talked about in his piece. That race would come in December of the same year on the same B-shaped course. But as I mentioned earlier, the Mines Field Race was the first of four races to make up the Gilmore Cup. The Targo Florio at Ascot Legion Speedway would be a massive financial failure because it was both the road and the oval course, and folks just pulled up to the side of the road and watched and didn't buy any tickets. At Oakland Speedway, the one-mile dirt track, in Oakland, California, big financial success there. Everybody turned out to see it in Silvergate Speedway. The 5.8 Sturt Oval also a massive success. Now, something strange and seemingly minuscule happened to Pickens at the 1934 Mines Field Race. W.H. Pickens stepped on a nail. It happens. They just banged grandstands together, built all this stuff, threw the whole place together. So Pickens steps on a nail, and his foot gets infected. And his leg gets infected. And he has gangrene. And he's dead by July. So Pickens never even saw the end of the Gold Cup. Pickens never even saw the end of the year. And Pickens was in such bad medical shape a month or two after the February Mines Field event, he probably didn't have much conception of just how popular everything else he was doing had worked. And dare I say, had Pickens lived, I don't know if we'd be talking about Bill France as being the guy who really launched stock car racing into the stratosphere of American culture. The New York Times wrote a obituary of W.H. Pickens, and I'll read it to you here. W.H. Pickens dead, sports promoter, organized of tennis tour, star succumbs to blood poisoning from nail, managed auto racers, Lincoln Beachy, Aviator, and Barney Oldfield took part in his stunts. Los Angeles, July 20th, Associated Press. William Hickman Pickens, sports promoter, died today of blood poisoning caused by a rusty nail on which he stepped. He was 60 years old. With C.C. Pyle, he organized a touring troupe of professional tennis stars. Pickens also sponsored an American tour for Pavo Nurmi. He was a native of Birmingham, Alabama. As business manager and chief lieutenant of C.C. Cash and Carry Pyle, Bill Pickens had as much to do with initiating the drift of amateur tennis stars into the professional ranks. In particular, he made all the preliminary arrangements for the most sensational of all such transfers that was Suzanne Langland, the French woman who became called the only tennis player who could empty the center court at Wilmington, at Wimbledon by playing on an outside court. His greatest attraction was a combination of Lincoln Beachy, the aviator, and Barney Oldfield, the racing motor driver. He would announce the thrilling posters that the demon of the air would race the daredevil of the ground and for the championship of the world. And race they did in nearly every big city in the United States, managing by happy chance to alternate their victories. The duels ended in 1914 when Beachy met his death by his plane in a stunt of flying upside down, crashing his plane into San Francisco Bay. 
Pickering started his career in Birmingham, standing on a street corner with a primitive Edison phonograph, whose music could be heard through an earpiece if you dropped a nickel in the slot. He gave up the work when the megaphone attachments ousted the earpieces. So the race has been run. We know what happens, sadly, to W.H. Pickens over the course of this next few months after the event took place. But what about the racers in the event? And I know I haven't talked a lot about the actual race at Mines Field because there's not a lot of written about the actual race at Mines Field. It was an auto race. People changed position. They went fast, they went slow. They broke, they finished. But the people that participated in the race are the most interesting part of this whole thing. The next section of this show, I'm going to take you through each of the drivers that qualified to race at Mines Field. And we're going to get probably the clearest picture you've ever gotten about how dangerous, how wild, and how fickle the world of motor racing was in the 1920s and 30s. This episode of the Dorkamotive Podcast is presented by BeefJerkyUnlimited.com. Made in Michigan with nationwide shipping available, Beef Jerky Unlimited cares about the jerky you eat. Small batch production means the highest quality jerky on the market and a wide variety of flavors and options to fit the full spectrum of flavor profiles you're looking for. Beef, pork, and chicken jerky are available, as well as low-carb options and more. Made with real smoke, real salt, and without adding nitrates, MSG, or preservatives. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com should be your next stop for a tasty, healthy snack. Whether it's sweet, hot, or smoky, BeefJerkyUnlimited.com has something to fit your taste. Use promotional code JERKO. That's J-E-R-K-O for a 10% discount on your next purchase. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com. They care about the jerky you eat. Use JERKO for 10% off. And so as much as the story is the race and as much of the story is Pickens and his rusty nail that was ultimately a fatal wound, I really want to talk about the people that were in this event. And I'm going to go through them in the qualifying order where they started the race and just talk about the scope and depth of the quality of this field. The number one qualifier was Rex Mays. Rex Mays ran the Indianapolis 512 times. He was a two-time AAA champion in 1940 and 41, both years he run it up at the Indy 500. He sat on the pole of the Indy 500 in 35, 36, 40, and 48. And oh, by the way, he was killed in 1949 at 36 years old at Del Mar, California, when he swerved to avoid a child that had somehow made its way onto the racetrack. Al Gordon, number two qualifier, started racing in 1925, ran the Indianapolis 500 in 1932 and 34, and in 1935, he qualified at number two, but he never finished an Indianapolis 500. In January of 1936, he won at Oakland Speedway. Later that month in 36, he was killed. He was racing with uh, his riding mechanic, Spider-Matic, at, at Ascot, and he rolled his car over and was killed. Al Gordon's death at Legion Ascot Speedway ended the racetrack. It was the end of it. Once he passed away there, the headlines got so bad and the kind of public sentiment got so bad, the place was closed forever in that particular location. The number three qualifier, Fred Frame, moves from New Hampshire to California to become a race car driver. July of 1932, he makes the fastest dirt track mile lap, beating a record that was set by Barney Oldfield in 1917. He won the Indianapolis 500, run it eight times, runner-up in 1931, and in 1932, he won the race. He was one of 10 cars that finished 40 started. He was the second Indianapolis 500 winner to average over 100 miles an hour. He lived to be 67 years old. Sam Palmer, 
Ran mostly dirt cars out west. He did run the Indianapolis 500 in 1933. Did not qualify, but was tapped as a reserve driver for Cliff Bergere and for Luther Johnson over the course of the race. Did not run many stock car races. Ran mostly big cars. He was killed in May of 1934, driving back from a race at Oakland Speedway. He was the number four qualifier. The number five qualifier was Frenchy Lahorg. And of all the racers in this event, Frenchy Lahorg was the one guy I could, not find for, I could find virtually nothing about. He was a veteran Southern California dirt track racer, did not travel much, never ran the Indianapolis 500 or attempted to as best I could tell. And the only record I could find of this guy, and I believe it's him, was that he operated a Ford dealership in California in the 1960s. Wilbur Hartwell Stubby Stubblefield, the number six qualifier, eventually named the winner of the race after Al Gordon's scoring was deemed to be inaccurate. In 1931, 32, 33, and 34, he ran the Indy 500. He was killed at the 1935 Indy 500 in qualifying, along with his mechanic Lou Whitaker when they crashed into a wall going 116 miles an hour. The number seven qualifier was Al Rinke. He was a rising star in the early 20s on the West Coast. He had kind of worked his way up racing at Ascot and other areas. He was 22 years old, and he was a hothead, as many of the racers kind of uh, of the era were. Another racer you're going to hear about in a few minutes, Ernie Triplett, also died. And at the funeral of Ernie Triplett, his friend, a reporter, was trying to get a photo from the L.A. Examiner, apparently trying to get a photo of Triplett in the casket. And Al Rinke beat him up. He was charged with assault. He was to serve trial in late April. Unfortunately for Al Rinke, on 11 April 1934, he was killed at the Targo Florio, the second Gold Cup race. He was 22 years old. The number eight qualifier, George Connor, raced from 1934 to 1941 and then 1946 to 1954, 14 times at the Indianapolis 500. In 1934, or 1935, I should say, was his first one of the 14. 1949 was his best finish. He finished third, never let a lap. He had five top ten finishes in his 14 attempts, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40, and 41, then the war. Then he ran 46, 47, 48, 49, 50, 51, and 52. Connor, one of the lucky ones, lived to be 94 years old. Mel Keneally qualified ninth, ran one Indianapolis 500 in 1930, started 23rd, finished 12th. California race driver, huge star in the Pacific Southwest. In the region, Mel Keneally was as best as there was. He just never quite cracked the code at the Indianapolis 500 the one time he ran it. Number 10, Chet Gardner. Known as the grand old man of auto racing, was killed at age 40 at Flemington, New Jersey, running a race at the fair speedway. He swerved to avoid a child, yes, another child on the racetrack. He started racing in 1922 and in 1933 won the Midwest AAA Sprint Car Championship. From 1930 to 38 at the Indianapolis 500, he finished fourth as best in 1933, two top fives and three top tens, and again was killed at the age of 40. Ernie Triplett man I mentioned just moments ago, was killed March 5th, 1934, less than two weeks after he ran at Mines Field. He was running a AAA big car race, the forerunner to today's Indy cars in California, and he had a fatal accident. He had five Indy 500s, 29, 30, 31, 32, and 33, his best start, fifth, his best finish, third, was regarded in the California area as the best of his era, Ascot Speedway champion and a total local hero. Number 12 qualifier was Louis Meyer. 
He was the first time, a, the first person to ever win the Indianapolis 500 three times, 28, 33, and 36. He had 12 starts, six of them were top fives. 1928 to 1939, he ran every race at the Speedway. Louis Meyer is also the guy who started the tradition of chugging milk after winning the Indianapolis 500. In 1940, Meyer would become an engine builder professionally and take over the Offenhauser plant, the Meyer-Drake-Offenhauser engine, which would become one of the greatest racing engines ever devised. He had a huge part in. In 1964, he worked with Ford to develop their IndyCar engine, which would go on to be all conquering as well. Louis Meyer lived to be 91 years old. The number 13 qualifier was Pete De Palma, the 1925 Indianapolis 500 winner. He made eight starts there. 22, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, and 30. He was the first ever to average over 100 miles an hour for the Indy 500. Started second in 1927 and was a champion of the AAA Series that year. He raced prolifically, everything and everywhere. Not without incident, though. 1934, he had an 11-day coma after a crash in Spain. Believe it or not, when he had this crash, the engine exploded, and as the story goes, a connecting rod. I should say this is at another crash. This is at the Avus uh, course in Germany, the very high-speed Avus course. When he crashed there, a connecting rod nearly hit Adolf Hitler in the head, if only. Pete Paulo came out of retirement to run the Gilmore race. He lived to be 82 years old. Wilbur Shaw won the Indy 500. He qualified 14th at Mines Field. He won the Indy 500. In 1937, 39, and 40, he was the president of Indianapolis Motor Speedway from 1945 to 1954 in the era where the speedway was recovered from the depths of neglect and the depths of what was looking like a very dire situation there. Shaw died at the age of 52 in a plane crash, but it was amazing that he was able to talk basically Tony Holman into buying the place in the speedway and not turn it into a housing development. He really did save the Speedway, convincing Rickenbauer to sell it to Holman and preserve it as a racetrack. Then we get to the number 15 qualifier, Kelly Patillo. Kelly Patillo has probably the most interesting singular story of anybody in this race. Kelly Patillo lived to be 66 years old. He began racing in 1929 at the Legion Speedway, Legion Ascot Speedway, and quickly was discovered to be a very large talent. He was a larger-than-life personality. He won the 1935 Indianapolis 500, the first to win it, with an Offenhauser engine. He won the 1935 AAA championship. He made nine Indy 500 starts throughout the 30s and early 40s. And in 1948, things got um, things got kind of rough for Kelly Patillo in 1948. Why? Because he was arrested in the winner's circle of Owasso Speedway in Michigan for the crime of assault with attempt to murder his secretary. He had attacked his secretary and threatened to kill her, and so he was arrested. He was given a 10-year sentence, and he served the majority of that 10-year sentence, and it was then paroled. Now, the the sentence was being served in California, and so he's in jail in California and gets paroled, and decides he needs to get back to a place that he really likes. And that, of course, is Indianapolis. So Kelly Patillo disappears from California, and he's gone. The authorities have been looking for him for two years, and then 
On May 23rd of 1957, we have a newspaper headline from the Logansport Tribune of Logansport, Indiana. Headline, Lured of Speedway Lands Kelly Patillo in Indianapolis Jail. Kelly Patillo, winner of the 1935 Indianapolis 500-mile race, came back Wednesday looking for another ride to the winner's circle. Instead, he was driven to the police station. Patillo, 52, was held today in city jail as a parole violator. Patillo rode to victory in the 35 Memorial Day Classic at Indianapolis Motor Speedway with an average speed of 106 miles an hour, and Patillo apparently hasn't lost any skill in staying ahead of the field. Police officer Robert Dodd of the Indiana Department of Corrections said he had been chasing Patillo's dust for two years. Todd chased Patillo from one county fair to another where the old driver drove on dirt tracks under assumed names. Patillo came to the speedway looking for a car to drive, but owners wouldn't even talk to him. He was sentenced to 2 to 31 years in Indiana State Prison on a charge of assault and battery with intent to kill. He was paroled to California. Two years ago, he left that state. Patillo said he visited, he planned to visit Indianapolis, which was off limits for him, but his parole officer in California had authorized the visit. He will appear in municipal court today. That was May 23rd of 57. On July 11, 1957, the Franklin Evening Star of Franklin, Indiana, published a story that said, Kelly Patillo must serve term. Dateline Indianapolis. Kelly Patillo, 1935 winner of the 500-mile race at IMS, whose love of racing caused him to break his parole requirements, faces two and one-half more years behind bars. Patillo, the fiery one-time racing king, must compete the, complete the maximum term of his sentence for assault and battery with intent to kill, according to a ruling announced today by the Indiana Board of Corrections. Patillo, in a jealous rage, had cut the face of his former secretary in an Indianapolis hotel room after learning that she planned to marry another man. The girl was not seriously injured. Patillo later was paroled by the Michigan City State Prison Parole Board with the requirement that he never return to Indiana. But the former 500-mile champion found the lure too great during the 1957 Speed Classic. He left his California home and appeared at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway track. That was where he was arrested. The final chapter here? May of 1959, Kelly Patillo sues USAC. He sues USAC because they won't sign off on his paperwork to allow him to enter the Indianapolis 500. In a story published by the Salem, Oregon Statesman Journal, it reads, Kelly Patillo, former winner of the Indianapolis 500-mile race, filed suit Monday in Marion Circuit Court against the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the USAC United States Auto Club. Patillo, who won the Memorial Day Classic in 35, asked for $50,000 in damages, charging that Speedway and USAC officials refused to let him enter this year's race. He claimed he went to the Speedway May 11th to fill out an entry blanket to pay his fees, but Henry Banks, USAC Director of Racing, denied him petition to do so. Perm- permission to do so. Patillo, who recently was released from the Indiana State Prison after serving several years on a conviction of assault and battery with intent to kill his secretary, had a similar suit pending, which was filed in Marion County Circuit Court in 1946. The suit was thrown out. Nothing ever came of it. Kelly Patillo lived to be 66 years old. The number 16 qualifier, Shorty Cantland, was killed in 1947 at the Indianapolis 500. He ran the race in 30, 31, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, 46, and he tried in 47. He was a paid driver in midgets and big cars, a national talent in the 1930s. He swerved to miss Bill Holland on the racetrack. The car left the racing surface, smashed into the wall, and he lost his life in that 47 attempt. The number 17 qualifier, Lou Moore, sat on the pole of the 32 Indy 500. 
a five-time owner of the Indy 500 as an owner. He was known as one of the toughest guys to work and drive for, but he also had some of the best equipment and high expectations. 1926, he won 18 of 26 feature starts on dirt, and he ran the Indianapolis 500 from 28 to 36. Pretty interesting stuff. In 1949, he famously fired the Indianapolis 500 legend Maury Rose off of his team. Lou Moore would die at the age of 51 of a brain hemorrhage. Cliff Brugier, the number 18 qualifier, started the Indianapolis 500 16 times, which stood as a record until 1974. He sat on the pole in 1946 at the age of 49 years old. He had four top fives, finished third, second, eight top tens. Cliff Brugier lived to be 84 years old. Luigi Gilbert Louis Tomey, the 19 qualifier, a stuntman and race driver in the 1930s and 40s, he ran the Indianapolis 500 from 36 to 41, finishing 10th in 1937. Tomey was killed on a movie set in 1955 while performing a stunt. The number 20 qualifier, Ted Horn, a three-time AAA champion at 46, 47, and 48, 24 wins, 12 second-place runs, 13 uh, third-place finishes, and 71 big car races of, of the Indianapolis type. He was a Legion Ascot Speedway veteran who had survived bad wrecks and burns, and he actually walked away from the sport for three years. In 1947, though, he sat on the pole of the Indianapolis 500 and finished third. He had nine top fives and ten starts at the Indy 500. Ted Horn was killed in 1948 at Decoin at the age of 38 years old in a racing crash. The number 21 qualifier, Ralph Hepburn, had 15 Indy 500 starts, was the number one qualifier in 1946, four top fives, five top tens. He finished third in 1929. That was his best number. He raced motorcycles in the teens, started in cars in the 20s, and he worked with Preston Tucker to actually unveil and sell the ill-fated Preston automobile. Ralph Hepburn was killed in Indy in 1948, testing the Novi Special for the Tucker Corporation. The number 22 qualifier, George L. Smith, otherwise known as Swede Smith, started racing in 1929 and by 1932 was known as one of the best drivers out there. Known as the King of the Bees, he was a West Coast Class B dirt car champion, so kind of one level below the top. But Ted Horn was a guy who was his great rival in those cars, and he could regularly beat Ted Horn. He was killed in March of 1934, less than a month after the race at Mines Field, in a wreck that killed three people. He smashed his car, he ended up killing himself, ended up killing his mechanic, and ended up killing Ernie Triplett in the same wreck. Triplett's name, of course, came up earlier with his funeral problems. Herb Balmer qualified 23rd and was actually the winner at the race where Swede Smith died along with two others. A couple of weeks later, he was killed at Ascot. The 24th qualifier, Woody Woodford, otherwise known as Eugene Woodford. Race sprint cars, midgets, and stock cars to a degree. He started in Seattle, then moved to California, and Ascot, of course, was his home racetrack. He never made it to Indy, but he was known as one of the best drivers on the West Coast, and he started to migrate east. He was killed in 1942 while racing in Kansas. Number 25 qualifier, Eddie Meyer, Lou Meyer's brother. We talked about the success and legacy Lou Meyer had. He founded the famed Speed Parts Company, which carried his name, Eddie Meyer Engineering, based out of Hollywood, California. Like his brother, he had good genes. Eddie Meyer lived to be 90 years old. Tony Gallardo, the number 26 qualifier, lived to be 77. He started the Indy 500 13 times, had one top five in 1927, lived and raced in Los Angeles for most of his life, and in 1928, 
He was leading the Indianapolis 500 up to the final 18 laps. And finally, the number 27 qualifier, J.C. Brooks, maybe the most esoteric, least known name in the entire gathering of these heroes. He was the guy that raced the Rockney. The Rockney car qualified at the very tail end of the field. J.C. Brooks did not have the most decorated racing career. He ended up being a deputy sheriff, by all means living a quiet and long life in Southern California. That is a run-through of the field and the incredible carnage that racing brought during that time frame. It was dangerous beyond any other profession on earth. If you look at the pound-for-pound fatalities, injuries, maiming, and all the stuff that happened to race car drivers on a semi-professional, even amateur level back then, it is horrifying. It is absolutely unbelievable that the sport was even allowed to continue with everything that had happened. And in today's world of mass media, I really think if if we transplant our media 90 years back, the world of auto racing would probably have been stopped in its tracks with the amount of reportage that would have been done on crashes, local, national, and international over the course of that time. I will leave you with one final thought, and that is the fact that we can draw a straight direct line from the 1934 Mines Field race to the founding of NASCAR. We begin with that 1934 race. We have the rest of the Gilmore Gold Cup, which illustrates an important point. The one race on that four-race Gold Cup tour that lost money was the one that took place using both Ascot Legion Speedway and the roads surrounding it. Because they could not control ticket sales on the roads, they got smoked. People didn't want to pay money to sit in the arena when they could just sit in the side of the road for free. The other three races made piles of money. Pickens, of course, didn't live to see it, but his idea was genius. In 1935, Sir Malcolm Campbell went 276.82 miles an hour on the sands of Daytona Beach. was the last speed record set on Daytona Beach. By this time in history, pretty much everybody else had migrated to the Bonneville Salt Flats. There was no tides to deal with. There was no weird weather to deal with, typically. It was a more consistent surface, and it had more room. The Daytona folks knew losing Speed Week on their beach was going to be a disaster as far as tourism and income goes. So they went to a local racer named Sig Hogdahl and asked Sig Hogdahl to organize a race of some sort on the beach. And they thought it should be a race involving stock-type cars because of what had happened just one year ago in California. So in early 1936, Hogdahl had promoted this race through 1935, and in 1936, he has the Daytona 250 with a partner named Bill France Sr. They lost $22,000. In 1937, the Daytona Elks Club sponsors the race, and once again, it is Hogdahl and France, with France taking much more of a promotional lead on this event. The event grows very, very quickly from what it did the year before, but it still is a money loser. In 1938, Bill France took over the entire event himself. And from 1938 forward, Bill France would become the one-man human dynamo of stock car racing, promoting not only his race in Daytona, but also promoting races at small dirt tracks all over the southeastern United States. Dirt track competition continued on the west coast, of course, in the middle part of the country. But most of the dirt track competition there concentrated on those AAA-style quote-unquote big cars. The stock car fad on the West Coast would turn into the stock car phenomenon in the Southeast, and Bill France was behind it all. So, if the race had not happened at Mines Field, which is now LAX Airport in 1934, 
Sig Hogdahl would never have been asked to put on a race in Daytona in early 1936. He would never have drafted into the services of a young racer and the guy who was looking to make some money in Bill France Sr. And Bill France Sr. would not likely have been given the creative spark to then turn the Daytona race into one of the more iconic moments in American motorsports, go on to build the Daytona Motor Speedway, and go on to become the magnate of stock car racing and founding an organization named NASCAR, which still dominates the American motorsports landscape today. So there will be some that disagree with my premise that the Minesfield race is the birthplace of American stock car racing, and that it actually was born in Elgin, Illinois the year before. But I think Elgin, Illinois was the setup, and I think Minesfield in 1934 was when that stick of dynamite blew up and the popularity of racing stock cars with incredibly talented drivers in a quote-unquote evenly matched situation would become a blueprint for the American racing scene that lasts until this very day. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast. I hope you understand what racing was in the 20s and 30s. It was gritty, it was dark, and it was deadly. But this, to me, is a pretty fascinating story of some history that has been all but washed out into the sea like the sands of Daytona Beach. Thanks very much for listening. As always, we'll be back soon with another Dorkomotive Podcast. I'm Brian Loans. Thanks for your time. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is presented by BeefJerkyUnlimited.com. Made in Michigan with nationwide shipping available, Beef Jerky Unlimited cares about the jerky you eat. Small batch production means the highest quality jerky on the market and a wide variety of flavors and options to fit the full spectrum of flavor profiles you're looking for. Beef, pork, and chicken jerky are available, as well as low-carb options and more. Made with real smoke, real salt, and without adding nitrates, MSG, or preservatives. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com should be your next stop for a tasty, healthy snack. Whether it's sweet, hot, or smoky, BeefJerkyUnlimited.com has something to fit your taste. Use promotional code JERKO, that's J-E-R-K-O, for a 10% discount on your next purchase. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com, they care about the jerky you eat. Use JERKO for 10% off.